Well, great. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for the invitation to uh, visit. As, <clears throat> as Jeff said, I feel like I have a <clears throat> sort of a strong affinity with Duke because um, of my relationship with the institution for so many years through CLGB, both with the oncologists and with the statisticians and, and others who worked in, uh, in CLGB all those years. So it's great to be back and see a lot of old friends and meet some new people. And so, um, you know, as, as you're all aware, we're doing a lot of targeted therapy in cancer these days. And, and um, increasingly, I think we're going to be needing to combine targeted drugs. And there's a lot of challenges to doing that on multiple fronts. And I wanted to just talk a little bit today about, um, you know, how we're approaching some of those issues. So why are we combining targeted agents? It's, you know, fairly uh, obvious to those of us who work in cancer. It's, it's really, I think, fundamentally about managing heterogeneity, um, redundancy, and adaptation, um, you know, which are, in many ways, I think, the critical features of cancer that allow cancer to survive, evolve in the patient, and escape from therapeutic um, uh, interventions that we uh, attempt to, uh, to go forward with. Um, we're recognizing that there are a number of sort of common mechanisms by which tumors become resistant to targeted therapies. And, you know, some of the more common ones are pathway crosstalk, downstream pathway activation, parallel pathway activation, feedback loops. I'll give you some examples in a minute of some of these things. Um, and all of these features really can occur sort of de novo as part of the malignant phenotype, or it can result from uh, perturbation of molecular pathways that we introduce by um, administering a targeted therapy, producing a pathway block, and then the, you know, the tumor uh, reacts to that, um, or from uh, essentially natural selection that we're um, uh, enforcing um, by virtue of the therapies that, that we apply. So, you know, if you look at mechanisms of EGFR uh, inhibitor resistance, this is well known to many of you now, uh, and the mechanisms are falling into various uh, categories. There can be secondary mutations um, at the uh, drug binding site. There can be a variety of downstream mutations that keep the pathway active, uh, even if you block upstream uh, with a receptor blocker. There can be parallel pathways, so metamplification probably comes up in 5 to 10 percent of non-small cell lung cancers as a resistance mechanism. Jeff. Um, and, uh, you know, and this, these uh, observations are becoming increasingly common across types of therapy. So, um, you know, this is uh, from a recently published summary of mechanisms of resistance to the BRAF inhibitor, vemurafenib. And, you know, again, we're seeing same kinds of things. If you, it's all depicted on this side of the slide, but, um, you know, mutations at the drug binding site, uh, mutations in downstream genes, uh, mutations in, in uh, um, other pathways or um, amplification of uh, alternate signaling pathways um, that enable the tumor to circumvent uh, the block that's produced by the drug. Um, same thing appears to be happening with uh, the drug crizotinib, um, the, the ALK inhibitor in non-small cell lung cancer, where um, again, we're seeing resistance mutations emerging in maybe 25% of the cases. There's uh, overexpression of the, of, the, of the gene and copy number variation. There are alternate oncogenes uh, that become mutated or overexpressed. So, you know, I think what we're seeing is that um, cancers are displaying a fairly consistent and relatively limited number of strategies, but there are enough of these strategies, you know, four or five different um, uh, alternate routes to keep the cancer going, uh, that probably introducing a single targeted therapy is not going to be sufficient to produce a sustained remission in a cancer. And that is, you know, what we're, is being recapitulated in the clinic where we see high response rates to many of these targeted therapies, but they're fairly transient. So over a period of, you know, three to six months, uh, most patients, at least with solid tumors who are getting a targeted therapy, ultimately develop resistance and then progression. Um, so, you know, that, that those observations lead to a variety of potential strategies for combining targeted drugs. This is a little bit difficult to, to read, but you can certainly look up um, the paper from Janet Dancy, now published 
six years ago, but I think even at that time, um, you know, demonstrating a number of potential strategies going forward so you can, you know, combine agents that hit the same target in different ways. So, you know, an example might be an antibody that hits the ligand receptor um, interaction and, you know, a, a small molecule kinase inhibitor that inhibits at the ATP binding domain, but of the same receptor. Um, you can look at um, looking at upstream and downstream um, inhibition uh, to try to really maximize the pathway inhibition. You can inhibit parallel pathways. Uh, might be, you know, using an EGFR and a MET inhibitor in combination. Um, or you can try to interrupt some of the feedback loops that develop as a consequence of introducing a block in a particular pathway. And all of these strategies, you know, are beginning to be looked at in various uh, ways with various tumors. Now, <clears throat> It has taken some time to develop a sufficient number of molecules to be able to look at drug combinations. And I think we're finally getting to that point. So if, again, if one looks at just the EGFR pathway, you know, you don't have to read this, but all of these boxes illustrate um, molecules that are, you know, either in the clinic or in development to target the pathway at various points. So. That, you know, the point of this slide is that um, there are now becoming available a sufficient number of drug um, molecules that we can actually explore um, rational ways of combining targeted therapies based upon our hypothesis as to the mechanisms of, of resistance to single agents. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so to me, you know, I think the, these are really the key issues that we have to think about before moving a combination to the clinic. Because as I'll show you through a series of examples from clinical studies, um, this is far easier said than done. <clears throat> and, um, you know, where we fail, I think, is, is when we don't have a good handle on these things. Um, so clearly we need to know the mechanism of action of each agent given individually. Um, we need some strong biological rationale for actually combining the agents, uh, hopefully supported by some non-clinical model systems that show at least additive um, activity from, you know, combined pathway inhibition. Um, uh, ideally, you know, we want to demonstrate that the drugs actually have an impact on the pathways <clears throat> that, that they're supposed to be uh, affecting. And I think probably most importantly in applying uh, these strategies in the clinic, we need to have some ability to identify patients who are likely to benefit from the intervention. Uh, and, and oftentimes, that's where we have failed uh, up until now, at least. So, you know, here's just an example um, that I know the lung cancer docs will be uh, familiar with. So, um, you know, this is. Um, some preclinical data looking at combined EGFR pathway inhibition uh, in a lung cancer model with the T790M resistance mutation. So this is a mutation that confers resistance to uh, EGFR, uh, small molecule EGFR inhibitors. Um, and in this model system, uh, you know, if uh, this, this is combining cetuximab, so an anti-EGFR antibody, um, with uh, this drug now known as afitinib, uh, BIBW, which is an irreversible EGFR uh, kinase inhibitor, um, and in patients with a resistance mutation, the T790M mutation, or in, in a model with the T790M mutation, and showing that the combination of the two produces much more profound suppression of tumor growth than uh, either drug by itself. So this you know, it was rapidly moved into the clinic, actually, by Boringer Ingelheim, which makes this drug, uh, in a essentially phase one clinical trial um, in patients previously treated um, with uh, either erlotinib or gefitinib uh, who had non-small cell lung cancer with a known EGFR mutation or who had exhibited stable disease on one of the EGFR inhibitors for at least six months uh, and then had disease progression. Um, and, um, uh, and these patients were treated with a combination of cetuximab given at a standard dose and uh, afatinib um, at the dose shown here. Uh, you know, and the data were very uh, impressive uh, for a phase one study. Um, this typical waterfall plot that we're all accustomed to looking at now where the downward looking bars indicate degree of tumor regression on a per patient basis. Um, 
And, and the interesting thing is, so the red bars are the patients whose tumors actually had the T790M mutation, where it would have been predicted from the preclinical data that this combination would be effective, and in fact, it, it was effective. Now, this is not a comparative study. There's no control group here. It's hard to know exactly what to make of this, except that there's a strong signal that this combination might actually work, and you know the combination is certainly being pursued in this population of patients now. Um, but it's the, you know, I think it's an example of how you can make a preclinical observation that at least justifies moving quickly into the clinic. And if you can, um, you know, select the right group of patients, you can show a high level of, of activity. That said, uh, you know, if you start to look at comparative clinical trial data on combining targeted agents, there are a lot of examples where it has not worked out so well, and I just wanted to give you a few of those. So probably the best known, um, at least to the GI docs, uh, GI cancer docs in the room, you know, is trying to combine um, cetuximab and bevacizumab in treating advanced colorectal cancer. So these are two targeted drugs. One targets the VEGF pathway, one targets the EGFR pathway. They're both FDA approved for use in treating colon cancer. It seemed like sort of a no-brainer to combine them uh, in, in patients receiving chemotherapy. And um, there are several clinical trials now that attempted to do this, <clears throat> all of which failed to show a benefit of combining the two, and in fact, um, suggested that combining the two might actually produce worse outcomes. So this is progression-free survival. This is overall survival. This is chemotherapy with the two targeted agents combined, as opposed to just bevacizumab as the standard of care. So clearly, the combination is no better and may actually be a little bit worse for reasons that are not entirely clear. Um, here's another study, the so-called Cairo 2 study, where, uh, again, same basic design, a standard chemotherapy regimen with bevacizumab as the control group and then adding cetuximab um, in combination as the experimental uh, arm, and again showing that um, the two-antibody combination actually does a little bit worse, um, in, at least in terms of progression-free survival, uh, and certainly no better in terms of overall survival. So people looked at this and said, you know, okay, so obviously there's something wrong with this strategy because it's not coming out the way we anticipated. Um, these studies were done before the recognition of the importance of KRAS mutation as a selection factor for a use of cetuximab. Um, but even so, I think it illustrates the fact that you can't just start putting drugs together um, without really a good mechanistic understanding of what you're doing and invest, you know, millions of dollars and thousands of patients doing randomized phase three trials that ultimately um, uh, turn out to be failures. Um, here's another example, randomized phase three trial of sunitinib and erlotinib versus placebo and erlotinib, second line therapy in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Well-designed trial, took 960 patients. Um, primary endpoint was overall survival, no difference um, between the two groups. Again, you know, a strategy you would think might work, an anti-VEGF therapy and an anti-EGFR therapy. And again, the Kaplan-Meier plots, I think, you know, make it abundantly clear that, that this strategy was not uh, effective. <clears throat> um, another example of a, you know, good idea that sort of never went anywhere. This is in uh, patients with advanced renal cell cancer, randomized phase two trial, bevacizumab, plus or minus erlotinib, uh, no difference. Now you could say, well, you know, is the EGFR pathway really important in renal cell cancer? Maybe this wasn't such a great idea to begin with, but you know, this is sort of in the early days of targeted therapies. There weren't very many drugs around. People began to put these drugs together. But I think the, the point that I'm trying to uh, make to you is that if you don't have a strong biological rationale, if you don't have, um, you know, support of preclinical data, if you don't have a mechanism of identifying which patients the strategy is likely to work in, you're likely to fail. <clears throat> Um, here's another good idea uh, in real cell cancer. So lots of new drugs. There's like seven FDA-approved drugs in kidney cancer now, so there's plenty of combinations that one could play with. Um, so this is a randomized phase two study, metastatic renal cell, no prior therapy. Um, sort of two standard approaches, sunitinib as a single agent or the combination of bevacizumab and interferon um, versus a novel combination, an mTOR inhibitor, temsorolimus, um, with bevacizumab. Um, the endpoint here was 
lack of progressive, progressive disease at 48 weeks. There was also a toxicity endpoint. And again, you can see that the experimental arm actually did worse than either of the two standard of care arms. Um, in both endpoints, it was less effective and it was more toxic. Um, so not, not a good uh, outcome there. And this was, the um, again, the progression-free survival plot from the Lancet paper last year. And this was the experimental group uh, clearly having an inferior outcome. So are there any successes uh, to, to talk about? And, and there are some, um, although they're fairly modest, as, as I'll show you. But I think um, uh, you know, maybe we're learning from some of our failures, and maybe we're going to make some uh, further progress as, as we go. <clears throat> um, breast cancer, <clears throat> so um, randomized phase three trial, lipatinib and trastuzumab, so two EGFR inhibitors or two HER2 pathway inhibitors. One hits, um, uh, you know, at the, uh, at the signal transduction domain, one hits at the ligand binding domain or, the, uh, at the, you know, at the, at the um, extracellular domain of the receptor. Uh, lipatinib trastuzumab superior to lipatinib alone in HER2 positive breast cancer, but obviously the magnitude of the difference is small, four-week improvement in median overall survival, um, although statistically significant, you know, arguable how clinically important uh, uh, this, this really is. Um, here's another uh, randomized phase three study looking at two sort of targeted agents. Again, lipatinib targets uh, HER2 and EGFR, uh, letrozole and aromatase inhibitor, so essentially targets the estrogen receptor um, pathway in hormone receptor positive, HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer. For the non-oncologists here, this would be a very small subset of all patients with breast cancer because it's relatively uncommon to have uh, ER positive and HER2 positive disease in the same, uh, in the same setting. Um, again, um, this study was um, statistically significant, showing a five-month improvement in median progression-free survival, but no improvement in overall survival. Um, uh, yet viewed as a success story. Um, things are starting to look a little bit better. So here's the recent uh, data from the New England Journal on uh, what's been uh, known as the Cleopatra study. Um, so this is a combination of two uh, antibodies that hit the HER2 pathway at, at two different points, pertuzumab uh, and, and trastuzumab. Um, given with a chemotherapy regimen, uh, docetaxel in patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. You know, now the differences in, in outcomes are starting to look a little bit uh, better, 6.1-month improvement in median progression-free survival for, um, you know, this um, two-pronged approach to inhibiting the HER2 pathway. Um, no data yet on overall survival, so we don't know with uh, just how impactful this approach is going to be. Um, it's going to be expensive. We know that much. Uh, <clears throat> um, and these are the uh, survival data, although the p-value looks to be statistically significant because of this very small number of events from what's essentially an interim analysis, this is not a statistically significant difference uh, at, at, this, at the time of the publication, anyway. But the, tr the trend is in a favorable direction. Um, another interesting study um, published right around the same time, <clears throat> the, um, the Bolero study, uh, uh, um, as it was coined. This is looking at the interaction between um, mTOR inhibitors and the estrogen receptor uh, pathway. And um, the fundamental rationale here is that hyperactivation of the mTOR pathway has been observed in endocrine-resistant breast cancer cells. Uh, and so there's a, a rationale for this approach. There's preclinical data to support doing it. So if you look at, um, this is just an in vitro study of cellular proliferation. And you can see, um, again, that um, um, uh, there's an interaction between efrolimus and letrozole with the two drugs together, um, you know, having the optimal um, effect on cellular proliferation. <clears throat> so that led to uh, the design of this study. Sorry, that sort of blanked out there for some reason. But anyway, um, uh, 724 patients, postmenopausal, ER positive, HER2 negative, advanced breast cancer, where patients were refractory to an aromatase inhibitor. 
They were randomized to Everlimus uh, and Exemestane, another aromatase inhibitor versus placebo and Exemestane uh, with the uh, endpoints uh, shown there. And again, results here looking uh, pretty promising compared to uh, you know, what we've seen for some of the other uh, drug combinations. 6.5-month improvement in median progression-free survival for this study. Again, no, um, no survival data yet. Um, still, um, the data is still sort of immature. Um, but the magnitude of the improvement for the combination looking a little bit better than what we've seen um, for some other combinations. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> What about lung cancer? So I, Jeff Crawford snuck in the room, so I'm glad I had a few uh, lung cancer slides in here. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, one of the mechanisms of um, EGFR resistance is, is uh, MET amplification. So, of course, now that there are MET inhibitors available in the clinic, it seems logical to begin to look at combining uh, uh, anti-MET therapies with anti-EGFR therapies. And, Certainly, there's a scientific rationale for doing that. Um, and there's a lot of these MET inhibitors now that are coming into, uh, into the clinic, both in terms of uh, monoclonal antibodies as well as small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So there are drugs to play with, if you will, in the clinical trial setting. Um, so this is a study that's um, gotten some attention. Um, I think. You know, depending on your point of view, you could argue whether this is a success story or not. I think it's, the, the answer is it's really too early to say, and, but there are some interesting leads here. This is a small molecule MET inhibitor, um, the Arcule drug. Um, now has an actual name to Vatinib or something like that. But um, <clears throat> anyway, um, uh, uh, studied this about a 400-patient randomized study done in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer who were randomized to get standard uh, anti-EGFR therapy with erlotinib plus the MET inhibitor versus erlotinib plus placebo. 33 sites in six countries um, took 11 months to enroll, as I said, about 400 patients. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival. <clears throat> um, these are the overall study results. Um, this, um, uh, you know, was considered to be a positive study, although obviously a very modest effect in progression-free survival. The interesting thing about it, I think, was when one began to look at various molecular subtypes within the population of patients, almost all the benefit that was observed for adding the uh, anti-MET therapy uh, was observed in patients who had KRAS mutant non-small cell lung cancer a subtype of non-small cell lung cancer that one would predict would not respond well to the EGFR uh, inhibitor. So maybe what we're seeing here is a pure anti-MET effect uh, in a tumor type that is otherwise resistant to an EGFR inhibitor, uh, or maybe this is some sort of um, additive effect of the two drugs. I think it's hard to know. But, you know, it, it has at least provided an interesting lead that if this strategy is going to go forward, maybe it should go forward in this, um, uh, this subgroup of patients. Um, another study of similar design, this one looking at the anti-MET antibody known as, as METMAB. Um, this is a randomized phase two study. Um, so patients were treated with erlotinib plus the antibody versus erlotinib plus uh, placebo. <clears throat> In this study, some attempt was made to look at um, MET expression. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the tumor cells. So an uh, immunohistochemistry uh, assay was developed, um, uh, shown here, 1, 2, and 3 plus, um, as defined on the slide. Uh, and they did have tumor tissue available from essentially all the patients in the study that they could look at, uh, at least retrospectively. So you know, the patients were not selected for enrollment in the study based upon the intensity of MET staining, but they could look at that after the fact. Um, again, interestingly enough, if you looked at the results uh, in the overall study population, this was a negative study. There was no advantage to adding the antibody to erlotinib in an unselected patient population. Um, uh, the, again, the interesting sort of uh, observation um, 
comes if you look at the uh, immunohistochemistry data. So about 50% of the patients in the study were high MET expressors. And if you look at the outcomes uh, in just that group of patients, there does seem to be a benefit to um, the combination approach uh, in the high MET expressing tumors. Um, of concern is if you look at the low expressing MET patients, they actually do worse. Uh, if they get the combination. So this is the, the combination in terms of both progression-free and overall survival. So, um, you know, I think this, these studies are very instructive in many ways, I think, but, you know, certainly, it, again, it illustrates the fact that it's ideal to have a mechanism of selecting patients likely to benefit, and also that we can't assume that, you know, just putting these combinations together are necessarily going to be <coughs> safe, uh, or that the worst possible outcome could be no incremental benefit, because the worst possible outcome could actually be that the patients do worse. Um, and I think we have to understand why that might be, um, you know, and, and how we can identify that as a possible outcome before getting started. <clears throat> so probably the, the best recent example of, you know, combining targeted therapies that's uh, looking very promising is um, combining... Um, uh, RAF inhibitors with MEK inhibitors in patients with advanced melanoma. So I think, you know, uh, everyone is aware of the fact that last summer the FDA approved uh, Vemurafenib, the first BRAF inhibitor, um, that is um, highly effective in treating uh, patients with advanced melanoma who have a BRAF V600E mutation, which is about 50% uh, of um, advanced melanoma cases. Um, the problem, again, is there is fairly rapid development of resistance, so the median duration of benefit for patients uh, receiving this drug is on the order of three to four months, uh, and then resistance develops, and then the tumor is rapidly uh, progressive uh, in most cases. Um, and so the question is, well, you know, can you um, further inhibit the pathway by also inhibiting downstream of BRAF um, at the level of MEK? Uh, and that's what um, this approach is all about. So let me just click through here. There's a few. Um, uh, so GSK has a BRAF inhibitor, which is different from Vemurafenib, but, you know, otherwise um, similar in a, in a different drug, but similar characteristics. Uh, they also have a MEK inhibitor, and, um, you know, it seems uh, somewhat logical to try to combine the two drugs. They do show synergy in combination in preclinical studies. Um, Here's an example um, in a xenograft model looking at, um, uh, this is the, um, uh, this is the MEK inhibitor, this is the BRAF inhibitor, two different doses, this is the combination um, showing uh, clearly a more than additive effect um, with the combination of the two agents. <clears throat> uh, and again, the other interesting thing about this is um, the clinicians are likely to you know, recognize that one of the side effects uh, of uh, BRAF inhibition is the induction of, of keratoacanthomas or sort of low-grade squamous cell carcinomas of the skin. Um, so in the um, animal models, <coughs> um, the BRAF inhibitor alone, you know, induces this thickening and hyperkeratosis that you can see here, but that's attenuated by adding the MEK inhibitor. One of the hopes of, of the combination was that um, uh, one could reduce the frequency of these uh, keratoacanthomas that occur in patients receiving this drug. Although, you know, in the context of metastatic melanoma, those are hardly life-threatening um, concerns uh, for patients. But if, the, you know, if these are drugs that would potentially move into earlier disease stages, you know, the adjuvant setting and things of that sort, where it would be a greater concern if you were also inducing uh, another form of cancer by giving the therapy. So. You know, another potential value of this approach is actually attenuating this particular toxicity. Um, so this study was uh, designed um, <clears throat> sort of a three-part uh, plan where there was initial sort of PK drug interaction study, just trying to look at um, uh, whether the two drugs had any pharmacokinetic interaction. Then there was a phase one dose escalation phase to the study with um, plan to have a variety of expansion cohorts, and then uh, ultimately a randomized phase two study. And, and if that was going to be uh, positive, you know, presumably a phase three trial. 
So what we saw <coughs> at ASCO uh, last year um, were the initial phase one results, and this is just a clinical uh, anecdote of a woman with very far advanced um, melanoma um, on, the, on the face um, who, after about five cycles of therapy, obviously had very significant uh, regression of these far advanced lesions, so <clears throat> that was encouraging. If you looked at the waterfall <clears throat> plot, um, again, high level of response, about an 80% um, level of response across all the different dose levels uh, that were studied. Um, I'm going to come back in a few minutes to talk about this sort of this issue of how do we define the optimal doses of these drug combinations, because I think this is far from straightforward, actually, and it's been done up until now in a very empirical way. Um, but in any event, you can see that in all the dose combinations that were studied, there were, um, you know, uh, patients who responded, and it was not clear that there was any particular uh, combination that produced a higher level of response than others. Um, and it, this is just quantified <clears throat> in this slide, looking at um, dose levels of the two drugs. And you can see pretty much across the board, response rates were in the range of about 70%. Um, you know, whether this particular dose combination actually produced a lower response rate, I think, is, is a bit hard to know, given the small numbers of patients in the study, you know, in, in each dose level in the study. Um, <clears throat> One of the encouraging things about this is that the response duration seemed to be somewhat longer than what's been observed with vemurafenib alone. Um, uh, again, although time will tell, um, and as the patients are continued in follow-up, we'll see where that actually settles out. Um, <clears throat> so, <clears throat> you know, those are examples. Uh, and, um, you know, there are other examples that Others of you are probably aware of. I didn't talk really at all about hematological malignancies where, you know, again, we're seeing lots of uh, targeted agents that potentially can be combined. Um, but I think, you know, we, we still need to ask the question, uh, why are successes so few and modest? Because uh, we would probably all agree that even the success stories, you know, are not necessarily at the impact that we would hope to see from combining targeted therapies. And I think the answers really are you know, in all of these bullet points. Um, we still don't understand all the biology as well as we should. Um, tumor heterogeneity is a huge issue in cancer um, that, you know, we, we've been aware of for a long time, um, but, you know, we now have the tools to study perhaps uh, a little bit more precisely than we have in the past. Um, I think we really don't understand system perturbations. So, you know, when we administer a targeted therapy, and we assume that it produces the desired um, block and the desired signal transduction pathway in the tumor. What is the response of the tumor to that intervention? Um, I think we don't have a good handle on that. And what is the implication uh, of that with respect to um, what the ultimate clinical outcome is? Uh, we still have largely inadequate non-clinical models, uh, and I think um, you know, we need to try to uh, remedy that situation, and maybe some of the, you know, genetically engineered mouse models will be better preclinical models than, than the typical xenograph models. I think a key issue that I've tried to illustrate by going through all these um, study results with you is we still have a limited ability to select patients who are likely to benefit. Um, you know, in, we talk a lot about clinical, uh, about targeted therapies in clinical oncology these days. Um, we talk a lot about biomarkers. Um, I would argue to you that most of the biomarkers that we use clinically um, are far better at selecting patients who are not likely to benefit from a therapy than selecting patients who are likely to benefit from a therapy. You know, even um, uh, testing for HER2, which is, you know, held up as one of the poster trials, uh, poster children for targeted therapy in solid tumors. Um, you know, only 20% of breast cancers are HER2 positive, uh, and not all the HER2 positive patients respond. So, you know, HER2 is, you know, HER2 negativity is a far better negative predictive factor than HER2 positivity is. Uh, and, um, you know, most, many of the other examples that we use routinely as sort of biomarkers for therapy selection fall in that 
category, KRAS testing and colon cancer and, and so on. So we're, we're moving in that direction, you know, looking at EGFR mutations and non-small cell lung cancer to select therapy. But at the end of the day, we still have um, a limited ability to select patients who really are likely to benefit. Um, I think we know very little about how to actually combine these targeted therapies in a way that accounts for their uh, pharmacology, their potential pharmacokinetic interactions, um, the dosing strategy, do we need continuous inhibition of each pathway, you know, uh, is, um, is it better to have um, a more interrupted or cyclical approach to administering uh, agents? There's some, you know, evidence in the lung cancer literature that, um, you know, if you cycle patients on and off for lotinib, you might be better off than if you try to keep the EGFR pathway continuously suppressed. Um, so I think we don't have a good handle on this. Toxicity, uh, is, you know, as I've tried to point out, is important. Sometimes the toxicities are unanticipated. Um, and then, of course, there's this question eventually that we're going to have to address, are, are doublets enough, you know, and, um, you know, should we be doing triplets, quadruplets, and is that going to be feasible from a toxicity point of view, from an adherence to therapy point of view, from a cost point of view, uh, and, and so on. I mean, we know already <coughs> patients who are taking oral therapies for cancer um, that are known to be effective, like tamoxifen for treating advanced breast cancer, that roughly 50% of patients discontinue taking their tamoxifen within three years of when they're initially prescribed the drug. And this is a drug that is, you know, well tolerated and known to be effective. And so if you start asking patients to take cocktails of two, three, four agents that cause fatigue and rash and diarrhea and so on, you know, what's the adherence to that going to be? Um, so, you know, this is the, um, the schema of personalized medicine, if you will, that, you know, we've begun to follow where we biopsy the cancer, we look at the mutation profile, we try to use that to select the therapy. I think it's becoming clear to everyone that sounded like a good idea at the time, but we really need more sophisticated um, approaches. Um, largely because of the issues of heterogeneity. You know, you've all seen this paper recently in the New England Journal, um, <clears throat> which I think highlights the, you know, the um, issues that we've long been aware of in, in tumor heterogeneity. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it illustrates the fact that if you biopsy multiple metastases in a patient, or if you sample multiple regions of a single metastasis in a patient, and you look for, you know, gene expression profiles, you're going to get variation. Um, and so what does this mean with respect to, you know, the clinician who says, well, Mrs. Jones, you know, your tumor's progressing. I'm going to do an FNA on this lesion in your lung, and that's going to guide our therapy. Well, you know, half the time you don't even get tumor, you know, and when you get tumor, you know, you don't know if that if that sample is in any way representative of the tumor burden in the patient. The other issue, of course, is that the tumor is not static uh, and that the tumor probably is evolving in the patient, you know, as time goes by. This is a, you know, a very interesting study that came out of Jeff Engelman's group at, at the uh, MGH um, last year, just looking at, you know, the, the longitudinal course of two patients with non-small cell lung cancer. So. <clears throat> This patient had an adenocarcinoma, um, had a, a sensitizing mutation to EGFR inhibitors, um, uh, was initially treated with chemotherapy, but then was treated with erlotinib, had a response, became resistant to therapy, was sampled again, um, now had developed a resistance mutation, a T790M mutation in the tumor, um, was taken off erlotinib, was put back on chemotherapy. Um, at, uh, was then sampled again, and now the T790M mutation appears to have disappeared. Um, patient was put back on erlotinib at that point and responded again. Um, now, it, does this represent evolution of the tumor in the patient? Does it represent just heterogeneity of sampling? Um, I think it's hard to know. You know, the other example was a patient who actually changed their histology over time, went from adenocarcinoma to small cell to adeno to small cell. Again, you know, had a sensitizing EGFR mutation, then developed a PIK3CA mutation in the tumor, became resistant to erlotinib therapy. Um, that was then lost over time, became sensitive again, and, and so on. So, you know, the point is that um, it may be necessary to sample the tumor 
each time a clinical decision needs to be made. Um, but we're not exactly sure what we're sampling, you know, because of the whole issue of heterogeneity along with just the technical issues of doing, you know, repeated tumor sampling in patients. And so whether this is going to be an effective strategy to really guide clinical decision-making, I think, remains to be seen. Um, I think to some extent part of the solution to this is going to be more sophisticated functional imaging, uh, you know, which I hope eventually will move us away from the need to do repetitive biopsies, or maybe we'll be able to get better sampling out of the peripheral blood, you know, whether circulating tumor cells will be the answer, whether circulating DNA will be the answer to allow us to sample the tumor burden in the patient. Uh, again, I think are all interesting areas for continuing research. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's clear that, you know, hitting the target is likely to be necessary but may not be sufficient for all the reasons that we've talked about. One of the interesting um, observations here, of course, is the whole issue of context um, as well. Not all um, pathways are equally important in every kind of cancer. And, you know, one of the interesting um, observations there has been looking at the BRAF inhibitors in colon cancer. So, you know, we talked about BRAF inhibitors being effective in treating uh, advanced melanoma. Well, you know, about 8% or so of colon cancers um, also have BRAF V600E mutations. But the clinical observation has been that vemurafenib has not been an effective drug in treating those colon cancers. And, you know, the question is, why not? So three papers all came out right around the same time, all showing essentially the same thing, all using different um, techniques to demonstrate it. This is a functional genomic study from uh, Rene Bernard's group in the Netherlands, um, essentially showing that um, in uh, colon cancer xenografts, that if you combine uh, a BRAF inhibitor, this is vemurafenib, with cetuximab, um, that you get far greater inhibition of tumor growth uh, than from uh, using either uh, drug alone. This was a study, um, <clears throat> again, looking at the combination of vemurafenib with erlotinib, um, again, showing essentially the same thing, that the combination of the BRAF inhibitor and the EGFR inhibitor produce far better inhibition of tumor growth and far better survival of the animals uh, than either strategy alone. Um, and again, you know, a third paper came out right around the same time, this one looking at um, vemurafenib with, uh, I think, gefitinib. <clears throat> and again, a lot of data here, but just, uh, you know, if you look at the cell line data here at the bottom, um, showing a consistent effect of combining the EGFR inhibitor with the BRAF inhibitor um, and showing greater effectiveness. Um, so, uh, you know, again, the context may be important, and the way in which we combine drugs may have to be somewhat uh, tumor-specific. Um, so in the last few minutes, I wanted to, oh, just a couple of other comments on dose-finding strategies. Then I want to talk a little bit about some of the regulatory issues surrounding combining these drugs. So as I mentioned, the dose finding is far from straightforward, I think, in, in combining these agents. And, you know, if you just look at the possible ways of doing dose finding for two drugs, um, you know, so there's lots of different strategies you can use. You know, you can um, escalate the dose of one drug and then escalate the dose of the second drug in sort of this uh, ladder design, um, you know, where you're alternating um, dose escalation uh, of the two different agents. Um, you can, uh, you know, escalate the dose of, of um, the, the two drugs in some fixed proportion. Um, you can hold one drug constant at what maybe is the recommended phase two dose and escalate the, the other dose uh, and so on. And I would suggest to you that, you know, if you followed all four of these strategies, you'd probably end up with four different recommended phase two doses for the combinations. So the question is, you know, which one is optimal? And I think um, uh, we don't know. We don't know which is the best dose-finding strategy to pursue in combining these, uh, these drugs. There may be um, optimal ways of doing it based upon the proposed mechanism of interaction of the drugs at the biological level, the proposed pharmacokinetic interactions of the drugs, if any. Uh, so I think we need to give a lot more thought to how to do the dose-finding. You know, people are um, proposing 
a phase one trial designs that sort of have these zone uh, dose escalation designs where you establish a zone of interaction between the two drugs and depending upon what you observe, you then move to a different zone uh, and you know that may be a strategy for doing it. But the, the point is that it's naive of us to think that we're just going to take two drugs combine them at some you know, tolerable dose, give both, of those, give both the drugs um, uh, at the same time, uh, on, on the same day, every day, continuously, and assume that that's the optimal way to do it. So we, we just need um, you know, a lot more research on how to combine the agents. Then there's the issue of you know, what is the impact of doing the molecular screening on sample size in, um, <clears throat> uh, in uh, screening studies. So this is from George Sledge's um, presidential address at, at, at ASCO uh, last year where he um, sort of coined this term of the number, number needed to study one kinase inhibitor. Uh, and this is the formula that he uh, used. So the number needed to study was one divided by you know, the percent of cases that were biomarker positive times the accuracy of the test times the fraction of patients who were actually eligible for the trial times the fraction of patients actually giving informed consent to participate. Um, and if he put this into play for a HER2-directed therapy, so 20% of the tumors are, uh, you know, are HER2 positive, the assay is 90% accurate, 50% of the patients were trial eligible, and 80% of those who were eligible give informed consent. Those are you know, all fairly reasonable um, assumptions. Um, so the conclusion was that 14 patients needed to be screened for every patient you could identify who could be studied in this scenario. Well, that's all good and well, you know, if you're trying to study one targeted agent. <clears throat> what if you're trying to study two targeted agents in combination that have these characteristics, 25% prevalence of the marker, um, um, <clears throat> um, you know, 90% test accuracy and the same other parameters, the number quickly escalates from 14 patients needed to screen to find one patient to study to 154 patients needed to screen to find one patient to study. So, you know, it's not going to really be feasible for us to be screening hundreds or potentially thousands of patients if we want to study a triplet, you know, to find one patient to study um, in, a, in a clinical trial. We have got to figure out alternative strategies for designing these studies in a more efficient way. All right, so finally, a few comments about the regulatory considerations. I think we're, all of you who work in the cancer field recognize that it's not so easy to get two different drug companies that make um, drugs that you want to combine to agree um, to collaborate with you in developing a drug combination. Um, you know, my, in my discussion with drug companies uh, over the years, they're, they're, there's actually, you know, two things that they're particularly concerned about, and neither one of them has to do with efficacy. They're concerned about um, safety. Um, they're concerned about their drug being branded with a side effect profile that actually is due to the other drug in the combination. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot of concern about that, and they're concerned a lot about labeling. Um, you know, they don't want the drug, they don't want their drug to be um, have limited labeling so that it's labeled only for use in combination with the other drug because that really potentially limits the, um, you know, the indication for the drug. So um, from the FDA's point of view, um, they issued a guidance on this in December 2010. It's a very generic kind of a guidance. The key points are summarized uh, here. Um, the combination is intended to treat a serious disease. There's compelling biological rationale for its use. Some preclinical model or short-term clinical studies suggest that the combination has substantial and greater than additive um, activity, so that's what uh, they're looking for. The safety profile of each drug should be characterized in phase one studies, uh, including MTD, dose-limiting toxicity, and PK, including food effects. So they want to see the safety of each drug individually. Um, they want the safety studies of the combination to be performed at the intended doses. Um, this gets back to the previous slides about, well, how do you know what the intended doses are and how do you sort that out? Um, and then, you know, phase two uh, data should provide evidence of effectiveness of the combination um, and optimize the dosing. <clears throat> 
So what does this translate into with respect to sort of study design? Um, so this, you know, would be the typical clinical development plan for a single new molecular entity. Um, you know, historically, we would do a phase one study, look at PK, look at toxicity, um, and then we would do some sort of a phase two study, maybe a randomized phase two study, um, looking at the new approach versus standard of care, seeing if we get a sufficient activity signal, um, and then go on to a typical randomized phase three study, looking at the new approach uh, against the standard of care. This could also be, you know, new drug added to standard of care versus standard of care. That's a fairly um, typical approach. But once you start to introduce two drugs, um, you know, then it starts to get a bit more complicated. Depends a little bit on what you think is the mechanism of the interaction between the two drugs. So, you know, if you look at this in the context of a sort of a synthetic lethality approach where you might expect that neither drug alone would have much effect, but the two drugs together, um, you know, have a, a dramatic effect. <clears throat> Here you still need to do uh, the early phase clinical trials looking at, um, at, at PK of the drugs. Um, you need to do some phase one testing of the two drugs in combination. That's in the FDA uh, guidance. Um, but, you know, since your hypothesis is that you need to have the two drugs present and that neither drug will work by itself, your randomized phase two study might just be the two targeted agents versus standard of care, and if that gives you an adequate signal, then you might move on to a phase three study of similar design. Um, if you are looking at sort of what's been referred to as a co-enhancement model where each drug might have a limited uh, level of activity, but you're expecting the two drugs together to have an optimal effect, so again, here you need your phase one study of the drugs individually. You need some sort of a phase one study of the two drugs in combination. You also need to sort out the optimal dosing of the two drugs. Here the randomized phase two study gets even a bit more complicated because now, you know, at least what the FDA has begun to articulate is they want to see a study of um, looking at drug A plus drug B versus drug A alone, versus drug B alone, versus the standard of care. So now you're getting into a very complicated screening study for activity, and then, you know, if your combination survives this approach, then you can get into your, your phase three design. So um, this is not going to be easy. It's not going to be efficient, and it's not going to be inexpensive to advance combinations of these targeted therapies using sort of our current um, paradigms. So I think this is the last slide. I'll just leave you with this sort of generic conclusion, but I think we would all agree that, you know, as with all the advances we've made in cancer in recent years, understanding the biology and advancing the technology will enable the clinical innovation that we need to address unmet medical needs in our patients. Um, you know, it's a very exciting time in cancer research, but cancer research is really peeling the onion. Every time we think we've made an advance, we realize how much more complicated it is. Uh, so we, you know, we got to keep going and we need to be more innovative in our approaches. So thanks very much. No, I, I think the point's extremely well taken, Mike. You know, somebody once said that uh, all models are bad, but some are more useful than others. Um, and, and I think that's probably true. And, you know, I think what we know is that most of our mouse models of cancer have not been predictive for efficacy in humans. Um, so we need better models. And I'm not an expert in mouse models, but whether those are gems or, you know, or, or primary xenographs, I think we certainly need to do better. Um, it's a lot less expensive to, you know, deal with, you know, 400 mice than 400 people uh, in, in a clinical trial. And so, um, you know, there's a sense of urgency, I think, that all, all of us have in clinical oncology of moving these promising therapies to patients as quickly as we can. But, you know, one of the things I tried to illustrate is that it's still a very high-risk maneuver. I mean, we still are failing a lot because, you know, we don't understand the biology well enough to, you know, really optimally design these therapeutic approaches. And it's enormously expensive. I mean, you know, to spend $100 million to do a phase three trial of, you know, 600 patients that takes, you know, 
35 countries in five years to accrue and then come up with nothing is <clears throat> a huge waste of resources. Um, so we do need better approaches. Um, you know, I think we need to sort of balance the urgency of getting these things into the clinic with, um, you know, having as much knowledge about how to do it before we move into the clinic as possible. But, you know, I, your, your points are totally, totally appropriate and well taken. Right. <clears throat> right. So, I mean, as you know, I mean, there are already some examples of those types of approaches being taken. You know, MD Anderson did the battle trial, which was an attempt to do that. Um, there's the, the series of I-SPY studies that are, have been going on that are attempting to follow that general approach. Um, whether those can be done in the traditional cooperative group environment, I, I think, is questionable just because, you know, it really requires... Um, you know, a very dedicated um, effort, you know, that, that involves multiple specialists that are not all represented at every institution. But I think certainly it will take a cooperative effort among multiple institutions, you know, to be able to do this. I mean, one of the, you know, real struggles we're facing in, in cancer clinical trials in general and in drug development in particular is that, you know, all of our common diseases are becoming rare diseases. Uh, you know, so the, the, you know, the days of saying, well, you know, Duke is big enough that we could do our own phase two trials in non-small cell lung cancer, well, fine, but, you know, can you do your own phase two trials in ALK-mutated non-small cell lung cancer? And the answer to that is probably no, you know, so um, it will take a coordinated effort. <clears throat> the one thing we've learned in, you know, doing sort of technology-intensive uh, clinical trials in the cooperative groups over the years is that, you know, the more you ask the local site to do, the more likely you are to fail <laughs> in doing it. Uh, and so, you know, you have to set up the trial in a way that um, you limit what the local site has to do and you do as much centrally as possible. And that way, you, you know, you have the quality control and the expertise that's necessary. Um, but, you know, do we need to do that? Absolutely. Is it possible to do it? I think yes. But, you know, like everything else in clinical trials, it really has to be very well uh, orchestrated and planned out. Yeah. <clears throat> no, it's a, it's a great point, Bill. Uh, you know, I mean, in that example, you know, which was the hypothesis was that in the EGFR-resistant tumors based on the T790M mutation, that that particular combination would be effective. And it was effective, you know, in that waterfall plot, but it was also effective in the patients who didn't have the T790M. So you're right, the biomarker in that setting perhaps was uninformative. Um, you know, I think what, what's likely to happen with that combination is that it's going to move forward in the T790M mutant patients because that's a, a, sp a regulatory space where there's not an approved therapy. And so just from a, you know, sort of pragmatic approach that a drug company might take to say, well, where, you know, where can we go to get our drug approved as quickly as possible? I think that's where they're likely to go. And so they will pre-screen on T790M. But that, as you point out, doesn't mean that the that combination won't also work, you know, in, in tumors that don't have that mutation. Um, but it speaks to the, the whole issue of <clears throat> how do you make sure that the biomarker that you're, you're testing is maximally informative? And it, it, there are regulatory overtones to this as well. <clears throat> because one of the things that the FDA has been very interested in is having studies that demonstrate that the biomarker can truly discriminate between, you know, uh, populations that are likely to benefit and those that are not likely to benefit. And the result of that, you know, has been that... You know, sometimes they ask for study designs that are either infeasible or excessively large. I mean, I can tell you that the FDA is interested now in demonstrating that the fish assay for the ALK translocation, you know, that, that is FDA approved as the companion diagnostic <coughs> to crizotinib. They now want data to demonstrate that the fish-negative patients don't benefit from crizotinib. 
Well, it's very difficult, you know, to go to a lung cancer patient and say, you know, we've done, we've done this test on your tumor. Um, we don't think that your tumor is likely to benefit from this particular treatment, but we want to give you the treatment anyway just to prove that it's not going to work. Um, so the regulatory standard is not really keeping pace in many cases with the realities of where we are in clinical medicine. But, you know, but the, the purists at the FDA want those sorts of analyses done for just the reasons that you point out.